Uh, let's do a little thought experiment. Imagine your friends, your crew, your tribe, your family, picture 10 or 20 people who are like proximate to you in life. And imagine you ask them, what is Christianity? What is it about? What's it for? What's it doing here? Imagine you put that question to them. What is Christianity? What's it about? What's it for? What's it doing here? What's its message or point? You put that question out there, and I wonder just, as you think about what kind of responses you would expect, if you could imagine that you would hear some themes sort of bubbling up, depending on who you talk to and what their experience or background is. So I, I bet if you listen to some people around you, you just ask them, what is this thing about or for, or what's its message, or what's it doing, what's the project, right? You might hear something about a sort of transactional sort of idea, um, that the whole thing is about a transaction, about sin and guilt, about uh, hell and heaven, about unrighteousness and righteousness. So you might sort of hear themes that sort of revolve around a transaction where something is getting exchanged or traded or fixed, right? You might hear that kind of stuff. Uh, you might hear, if you listen closely, you might hear themes that sound uh, very moral, like this is about being good, about being good people, about what kind of person is a good person, about how to be a good person, about um, inspiring people to be good, or guilting people to be good, or creating consequences when we're not good, but you might hear language of morality one, one way or another, right? Uh, you might, if you, if you listen and you just kind of poke around a little bit and you, you sort of test people's assumptions about what Christianity is or what it's about or what it's here for, you might hear language that describes an institution, right? Which is uh, people and power and policies and resources all built up over time that have been here for 2,000 years, an institution that has different branches and expressions. Uh, that might take you, uh, unfortunately, sometimes to moments when the institutional sort of version of that thing has been um, far from what it ought to be. And even recently, like we've seen some headlines where institutions that you might point at and say, that's Christianity, have really fallen short of what we would expect from those institutions. So you could get a transactional idea or a moral idea or an institutional idea, and I'm sure other sorts of things would pop up if you asked people, what is Christianity? What's it here for? What's it doing? What's it all about? Somebody in your circle might be insightful. They might say, well, it's called Christianity. It must have something to do with Christ. Like the word is in there, right? So then we could say, great, what's Christ doing? What's Jesus about? What is he up to? What's his project? What's his message? What's the point of what he's up to in the world? And it's one of those questions that if you've been around church or religion for a while, it can be a little bit like asking the fish, how's the water? Right? Like it's, it's all around you, but it's been a long time since you stopped to consider the nature of it, right? One of those questions that's so central and maybe so obvious that you don't actually think about it or you don't talk about it very often. And this fall, we want to kind of come back to that. We just want to sort of land ourselves in the center of whatever the answer is to that question. So today, I just want to set a table. Uh, there's been a lot of talking head the last couple of weeks. I don't know whose fault that is. I've talked a lot the last couple of weeks. Uh, today is not a long sermon, I promise. Today is more uh, of a just sort of setting the table for where we're going to go uh, throughout September and October as we move through the fall together. Uh, so I just want to look at the text for a moment and just like ask, like, what was Jesus about? What was his central message? What does that mean for us today? You guys want to do a little bit of work? You guys got to sleep in. I expect big things from 1145. <laughs> this is Matthew chapter 4. Matthew is one of the stories of Jesus. This is very early in Matthew's story of Jesus. This is the moment where Jesus sort of steps out into the world to do whatever he's here to do. And in Matthew, we read this. Jesus began to preach, repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven has come near. A few verses later, we read this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. If we went through the gospels, if we had the time, I would make what I think is a pretty compelling case that if Jesus had one thing on his mind, if Jesus had one kind of agenda, the language that he and the writers of the New Testament used for it was the kingdom of heaven, or in another gospel text, the kingdom of God. Same thing, the kingdom of the heavens, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. This seems to be his obsession. It seems to be the thing that he's trying to talk to us about when he teaches. It seems to be the kind of thing that he's demonstrating when he does healings, when he uh, describes parables, when he gives little pictures of some kind of reality that he calls the kingdom of God. Now, in the first century, you've got uh, the Israelites, the Jewish people, who look back on their history, and they, they probably have lots of conceptions of what's meant by the kingdom of God, because when they look back on their history, they see moments of visceral experience of God. Like they think back to the time when God liberated them from their slavery in Egypt and they find themselves out there in the wilderness where the presence of God meets them in a seen, heard, felt way on Mount Sinai. So they have this experience of God with them. And then out of that experience comes a way of being with God in the world. So they have the experience of God being with them on the mountain. And then out of that come things like the Ten Commandments and the law, which seem to be a picture for the people of like a way of being with God in the world. As if God is saying, like, I'm going to actually be your king. Like, I'm going to be the one around whom your life together on planet Earth is organized. The one who defines the shape and the nature of that life, who tunes you into what I want that life to look like. So you get a lot of that from Jesus as he talks about the kingdom of heaven. And it's probably wrapped up with all sorts of expectations for those people that go back to a time when they actually thought that God could be their king and that he could bring about the kind of world that they want to be a part of. In fact, like in the first century, they're like aching for it, they're longing for it, they're reaching for it, because they look around and it feels like God doesn't seem to be very much with us. Like we don't seem to actually have this experience of God our King, because we thought that when that happened, the world would be just and right, and we would, we would know his kindness and his friendship with our people, but they don't seem to be experiencing a lot of that. So like at one point, some of them get dragged off to Assyria and exile. At another point, others get dragged off to Babylon and exile. And at this point, they've been allowed to return home, but it's not really home because there's this little issue which is called the occupation of the Romans all over their homeland, right? It's a little bit like if I came to your house and I dragged you out of your home and you owned it outright, it had been your parents' home and your grandparents' home and your family goes way back on that place and somehow I take you by force out of that place and I take you away for a while, and then I finally say, you know what, I'm finally gonna let you go back. Congratulations, here's the keys to your home, your front door, and you get home and you realize somebody else is still living in the master bedroom and they're still calling the shots. You might be home, it doesn't feel like home. Well, these are the experiences of exile and occupation that shaped the Israelites going into the moment when Jesus stands up and he starts talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And these are people um, who would have always assumed there is like the spiritual and the bodily and the worldly all connected somehow when we talk about the reign of God. That it's not just some disembodied thing that sort of we feel, but it's also not just some physical thing that you can see, but it somehow marries those experiences in the presence of God. Uh, there's a man named Dallas Willard, who's a philosopher and theologian who... Uh, who, who writes at length about the nature of the kingdom of God. He died just recently, and he says in his writings that essentially the kingdom of God is the with God life. 
the with God life. And it seems that that's the thing that Jesus is obsessed with. And so uh, what we're going to do this fall is we're going to look at pictures and practices of the kingdom of God, like of the with God life. Because if we're going to take Jesus seriously, it seems we have to take this thing seriously. The pictures will come often from the scriptures, like moments when Jesus tells a parable. He'll say, the kingdom of heaven is like this, and then he'll put a picture in front of you to give you some sort of insight into its nature. Sometimes it's his healings that actually give a picture of the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's the ways that he takes an outsider who's been kicked to the curb and brings them to the center, that that's a picture of the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's by just looking at his death and his resurrection that we get a picture of the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's the early church that seems to be taking Jesus very seriously at the with God life. And sometimes it's the early church where you see pictures of the kingdom of God. And then there are practices, like where Jesus says, actually do these things. And where the church after Jesus has said there are ways of using our bodies and our brains and our hours in the day to actually participate in the rhythms of that kingdom. So that's what we're going to do for the fall. We'll bring a friend out uh, late September, September 30 and October 2. A friend named Aaron Nequist, who's a pastor and a worship leader and uh, a good friend of this community. Uh, Aaron has, for the last few years, developed like a real passion, specifically around the Jesus who didn't just say, here's the truth, believe it, but who said, I'm the truth, follow me. Like bring your body, your life, your time, your energies into these practices of the ways of the kingdom of God. So Aaron's gonna be here a little bit later to help us with that. But that's where we're going. And today, I just wanna crack this open with a sort of, uh, framing, like what kind of posture is appropriate for people who want to listen to Jesus talking about the kingdom of God? And to do that, I'm just going to go a little bit further here in the book of Matthew. So in Matthew 4, Jesus was going around talking about the kingdom of God. And as he's doing this and doing these healings, people are very excited. They've been, they've been aching for this. They've been desiring it. They've been longing for it. And he seems to not just be saying it, but be saying it with a certain kind of authority. Like when he says the kingdom of God is here and then he actually heals someone, that seems to like get people a little bit excited, like maybe God is actually putting things back together and inviting us into that kind of life. So the crowd starts developing, and Jesus sees the crowd, and then this is Matthew chapter 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, and he said, blessed are. Now, I know we've already heard the next few words in the reading today, but I want you to pretend right now that you have no idea what's coming next. Matthew 5 is the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew taking Jesus' core teachings, his greatest hits, if you will, compiling them. This is Matthew saying, he just wouldn't shut up about this stuff for three years. It's all we ever heard about from him. He's taking those things and compiling them in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is the opening salvo. This is the first Word. This is the entry point for the people who are trying to follow Jesus into this with God experience. And Jesus begins, blessed are. Now, blessed is a weighty word for these people at this time. It's like a strong word. It means something. There's even sometimes the sense that speaking a blessing could sort of alter reality. When a father blessed a son, it had a sort of binding, covenantal sort of power to it. Blessing is strong, important language for these people. So we should, should, we should work with this for a bit. Because what I'm going to try to make the case for is that what Jesus does is actually absurd, transrational, uh, paradoxical in these blessings. But to, to sort of understand what should surprise us here, I want to work on blessing first. 
Now, Matthew's gospel, like all of the New Testament, is written in Koine Greek, in a first century marketplace Greek. And in the Greek, the word for blessed, the one that we have here in the text, is makarios. Let's try saying that on three. Makarios. One, two, three. Makarios. Yeah, for the Greeks, this describes, and this is actually from the lexicon, the blissful existence of the gods. That's pretty strong, right? Uh, this is to think about a, a way of sort of imagining the world at the time where there are gods in the heavens, uh, these individual deities, and they don't have any need or want. They don't do any chores. There is no labor to their existence. In fact, in some of the early creation narratives that come like from the Greek mythology, the gods create human beings so that we can do the chores that have been created by this nasty old universe that they accidentally created. So in these narratives, the gods have created humans to do the chores so that they can enjoy the bliss-filled, needless life where they have every comfort, every luxury, everything they need. This is you on a perfect fall Saturday when it is 71 degrees and sunny and the lawn is mowed and manicured and the barbecue is cooking and there's beer in the fridge and the kids are playing cornhole and they're not fighting and Notre Dame actually shows up to play and everything is exactly the way you want it to be, right? Everything is just perfect. There's no debts coming at you in your budget. The bank account is full. The retirement fund is fully funded. Your wife is not fighting with you. Your husband has done all the chores that you asked them to do yesterday, and everything is perfect. This is blessed. The blissful existence of the gods. Now, the text is written in Greek, but Jesus wasn't speaking Greek at the time. The text is in Greek because at this time, if you want a text to be read widely, Greek is the shared language of written things at the time. But Jesus is a Jewish man in the first century, so when he actually delivered this teaching, he wouldn't have said Makarios. He would have said Ashrei which is Aramaic for blessed. Ashray. Let's try saying that on three. One, two, three. Ashray. This word is all over the Hebrew scriptures, all over the sort of spirituality or religious consciousness of these people. And Psalm 1, the first prayer in the Jewish prayer book, is a good example of the way that this word would frequently be used. Here's Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. So they're saying there's a certain kind of person and, and the blessed person is not this kind of person. And the, the kind of person you're not supposed to be if you're blessed is this person who walks in step with the wicked and stands in the way that sinners take or sits in the company of mockers. Now, a number of commentators have observed that in the poetry of Psalm 1, there's a directionality to this. So you're walking and then you're standing and then you're sitting. There's an entropy to it. There's a gravity to the way of sin or corruption. And the text describes a person who's getting sucked further and further and further into the orbit of wickedness or disobeying God or sin. And then the text says, blessed is the one who isn't falling to that gravity, who isn't subject to that kind of entropy. Blessed is the one who manages to keep his life above those depths. Blessed is the one who somehow isn't susceptible to the things that bring us down, but rather seems to sort of live a morally upright, righteous life. You know the type, and they're so annoying. Right? <laughs> They just, they seem to always be able to say no to the things that you should say no to and yes to the things that you should say yes to. 
So you have makarios in the Greek and ashray in the Hebrew, and together you get this sort of uh, what scholars would call a semantic range, uh, sort of a, a little world of meaning around the word blessed in the first century. And if I'm trying to put this together, you get something like this definition. Uh, next slide. Blessed, a pronouncement or promise of privileged circumstance or personal righteousness. If I say you are blessed, I am either pronouncing or promising your privileged circumstance or personal righteousness. Now, in fact, in some cultures and in certain worldviews, these two things are actually connected because in certain ways of thinking about the world, personal righteousness leads to privileged circumstance. That seems to be the assumption of the book of Proverbs, for example, which has a kind of cause-effect relationship between virtue and blessing. So if you do right, then you'll get the goods. And that can be a way of thinking about how the world works and even if those things aren't connected, the range of meaning around blessed has something to do with privileged circumstance or personal righteousness. Hold all of that in mind because I think Jesus is trying to surprise us and disrupt us when he says what he says in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is absurd. And I mean that in the technical sense. It's non-rational with any original meaning of the word blessed. Blessed are you when you find a poverty within you, when you look to that place within out of which we live, that place within where you would hope to find some hope or joy, that place within that you would hope to find some willpower, some perseverance of spirit, that place within where you, when it's full, you were able to live out of it a good life, but you look at it today and it's empty. You feel like you've been robbed of whatever those things were that you want to live out of. And he says, blessed are you. Blessed are you when you've lost the thing that you loved, when you mourn whether it's the dream that has crumbled on you or the relationship that fell apart or the loved one that's no longer here, blessed are you when you mourn. Are you the kind of person who can't take because you don't have the power or the status or the privilege of the personality type? You're not the alpha, but this is a world where you get what you can take. Are you meek? In a world where you get what you can take, are you the meek one who just doesn't have the means or the energy or the personality or the privilege or the status to take what you need for yourself? Are you meek? And Jesus says, blessed. And are you aching, hungering, thirsting for things to be right? The word for righteousness uh, here is dikaiosune, which can go either translated into righteousness or justice. In fact, if anybody has any bad memories from Philosophy 101, Plato's Republic, anybody read that book? In Plato's Republic, wherever you see the word justice, the word in the Greek is dikaiosune, which is the same word translated righteousness here. And different Bible translations will go either way on that. It seems to suggest in that range of meaning that whenever things are not right with you or around you, if it's righteousness, it may be that when, when you are not able to get your own life right, when you are not able to break out of the patterns that you are stuck in that are breaking you or the people around you, or when the world around you is broken, when you keep running into the systems that are broken, the unjust moments in our world that sort of come at you, 
And when, when, you, when you keep sort of aching for things to be made right, and it's like a gnawing emptiness in your stomach that you just can't fill, Jesus says, blessed. He gives the sort of richest, strongest, most robust word for sort of a favorable verdict on those experiences. And uh, it ought to sort of catch us off guard. Like for a moment, we ought to probably say, Jesus, are you crazy? Like for a moment, we ought to actually ask ourselves, why would anybody pay attention to such a sort of nonsensical message? But if you keep listening, you discover Jesus has a reason for all of this, right? So when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he gives a reason for that blessing. He says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it seems that like throughout these blessings, every promise that comes on the other side of a difficult moment in life is corroborated by the goodness of God's kingdom. You're comforted in God's kingdom. You're given what you need in God's kingdom. You will inherit the earth as a member of God's kingdom. Your, your aching, desperate need for things to be right will actually be filled in your experience of God's kingdom. It's as if he's saying that God's kingdom, which is here, which is available, the with God experience that he's inviting us into, it's as if he's saying that it is so abundant and generous and enduring and reliable and good that it can actually overwhelm or overcome any deficit of spirituality or righteousness in our lives, that it can overcome any deficit of circumstance in our lives and bring a fullness to our experience right here right now. In other words, I'm saying like this begins as phenomenally good news. Not that you make it happen, not that you drive it on your own, but that the kingdom of God is so good and so available that it can overwhelm or overcome any deficit of spirituality or righteousness or circumstance. That is a big promise that Jesus is making. It's a huge invitation that he's offering. Now there's more to the way that Jesus thinks about the kingdom of God that I think sort of uh, gives a little more insight into, into how he can say, do you have a poverty within you? Doesn't matter. Blessed. Are you aching for things to be right? Doesn't matter. Blessed. I think it's, it's more about how Jesus understands the nature of God's kingdom. So for example, in Matthew 13, he tells a parable, a little picture of the kingdom of God. And he says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Now, this is sort of a famous parable in Jesus' teaching. And if you're really bored on a Tuesday night, you can go read 2,000 years of interpretation on it. I've done that for you. It's fascinating. And it's interesting. There's different angles on the nuances of what this parable means, but there's a sort of a vast consensus among different scholars with different perspectives that at the heart of this, is, it's saying something about the, the life and the energy of the kingdom, that though it starts small and insignificant, it sort of emerges and grows on its own, right? Now, Pliny the Elder, I know that you were hoping I would get to Pliny the Elder. Pliny the Elder is a first century uh, commentator. He writes a natural history of things around roughly 80, 78. So Pliny the Elder is writing at roughly the same time that the gospel texts are being committed to pages. And Pliny the Elder, in this sort of early biology textbook, describes the mustard seed, and he says this. It grows entirely wild, though it is improved by being transplanted. But on the other hand, when it has once been sown, it is scarcely possible to get the place free of it, as the seed, when it falls, germinates at once. Watch this. Pliny is describing a plant that grows out of control, and you can't get rid of it. What's he describing? 
a weed. He's saying the mustard plant is like a weed. Now, I, I raise this because it's really important. I don't know about you, but I've had two or three moments in my entire adult life where I thought about actually taking care of my lawn. And when I thought about doing that, I stood there in front of this vast, uncultivated dominion of mine, and I saw things growing there that I didn't want there, and I started thinking about the phenomenal amount of energy that it would take for me to get rid of the things that I don't want there and actually cultivate the manicured uh, golf course fairway that I thought I was supposed to have in my backyard. And when I thought about it, I've just thought about the phenomenal exertion of energy that I would have to bring to the task, right? I'm fighting uphill. I'm swimming upstream against the onslaught of weeds that just seem to have a life of their own and keep coming, whether it's raining or drought, whether it's hot or cold, whether I'm fertilizing or not, the weeds just keep coming. They have a life of their own. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is actually like that, that it has a life of its own which begins to help me understand how he could say, do you have a poverty within you? That's okay. The kingdom of heaven has a life of its own. You don't even have to make it happen. You don't generate it or drive it. It helps me explain how Jesus could say, are you mourning the fact that you couldn't hold on to the things that you cherished? Is there a lament in your life? Is your soul ready to weep? He can say, there, there is still an abundance of goodness waiting for you. Because he understands that the kingdom of God is rooted in, in the very sort of nature of God, that God is being without end, that God is life without end, that God is power without end, that God doesn't depend on anything or anyone for God to be what God is. And if the kingdom of God is somehow a gift from God, if it's somehow rooted in God, then Jesus can say crazy things. Like, are you experiencing the worst kind of circumstance? Even that experience can be transformed into something that you would call blessed because he's inviting us into the life with God. It's that good and that enduring and that reliable that even the worst of things could be transformed into an experience that we would call blessed. Now, um, uh, Dallas Willard is the gentleman that I mentioned earlier who described the kingdom of God as the with God life. And Willard died a few years ago. And a number of people were with him when he died. And they've described his last words, which I know can feel a, a bit uh, exalted to pass around the last words of a person. Willard would probably bristle at the idea of being treated like a saint. But Willard is a man who uh, spent his life uh, really dedicated to understanding what Jesus was inviting us into, this with God life. And he spent his life trying to surrender to that and open his heart to that and follow Jesus into it. And, and so then it's at the end of that life that people describe uh, what happened at the end. I don't know about you, I've, I've been with people when they've died, uh, mostly because of my job. And being with people when they die, you see many different sort of experiences there. And of course, whatever's happening physically uh, can sort of take over and it might shape that. But sometimes when people are actually in the moment of their death, you, they, they might have enough uh, awareness or presence of mind uh, to help you understand the, the experience they are having or the sentiment that they are feeling in that moment. So having been with a few people as they've died, I've often thought, what, what, would, what would be my sort of final sentiment or experience of this life? When I'm at that moment and I know I'm at the end, like I wonder would I feel regret? Would I feel resentment? Did it not live up? 
Would I be afraid or peaceful or hopeful? And maybe every once in a while you've wondered, like, what would well up inside you when you get to the end of your life? Now, Willard was never a rich man. He did not know the blissful existence of the gods. And Willard would be the first to tell you that he had plenty of his own experiences where he struggled to be righteous. Uh, but the people who were with him when he died said that the sentiment that welled up inside him that he put to his lips was simply two words. Thank you. Thank you. Which I think is the thing that rises up inside a life when it knows that Jesus wasn't lying when he said, blessed, for yours is the kingdom of God. I think it's the sentiment that wells up in a life that has followed Jesus into that experience of the with God journey and found that it may not always transform your circumstance. It may not always lead to material blessings or easier days, but that there is something so enduringly good about God and God's kingdom that when you find yourself experiencing it, living in its currents, that you might too know that you are blessed, that maybe the end of a life lived in God's kingdom brings us to a simple, profound thank you. So we want to spend uh, the next couple of months just looking at pictures and practices of that kingdom, of how it is that we would actually accept that invitation and walk in the pattern of with God life. Today, uh, we're going to meditate just a little more before we wrap this up, and Dan and the team will lead us to return to these scriptures one more time. And as we do, I would encourage you uh, because we're going to spend uh, quite a while in these ideas this fall, that as we sing and pray and meditate on these scriptures, you could um, use them not just for this moment, not just for today, but as we meditate on this, you could maybe set an intention for the next few months of our life together as a community. You could set an intention to, to try to understand this picture of the kingdom that God is giving us and to possibly um, live a life that is surrendered to that a very promising reality that seems to be with us in the here and now. sing here's my heart lord and then we'll hear these passages again and have a little time to reflect on them here's my heart lord here's my heart lord here's my Speak what is true. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What poverty are you experiencing right now? Is it economic? Is it a lack of opportunity? Is it an inner experience? Do you feel a lack of hope? A lack of joy? Have you run into the limits of your willpower? 
unable to find the motivation to live the life you want to live. Just sit with that question for a moment. What poverty are you experiencing right now? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart. Speak what is true. Blessed are those who mourn. What have you lost? A loved one? A dream? A relationship? Do you mourn for things we've lost as a community, as a world? Have you avoided weeping because it feels uncomfortable or unproductive? Is there a lament in your soul? Blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. When or where in your life have you felt powerless? In a world where you get what you can take, have you ever been the person who gets left out? Maybe you haven't had the power or the status or the personality to claim your turf. Blessed are the meek. 
Blessed are the meek, for you will inherit the earth. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Do you ache with an unsatisfied desire for things to be better, for you to be better, for the world to be better than it is? Perhaps it's the limits of your own character or discipline that you keep running into. Or maybe it's the unjust systems, the broken patterns of our world that keep running into you. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be satisfied. Let's close by singing together, the kingdom is yours. It's a reminder that the kingdom is open to any and all, the meek, the poor in spirit, Let's sing together. The kingdom is yours. The kingdom is yours. Hold on a little more. This is not the end. Hope is in the Lord. Keep your eyes on Him. Will you stand and sing with us? The kingdom is yours. The kingdom is yours. Hold on a little more. This is not the end. Hope is in the Lord. Keep your eyes on Him.
as any and every kind of person who wants to follow Jesus into the with God life of the kingdom because the kingdom of God is yours. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.